Okay, Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to do 1 through 14. Brittany's going to read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace to come and give us wings to live in the way that you have commanded us to. Is there things that are hard, things that we resist? But we know you have a purpose and a reason and a rhyme behind every command and commission. And so we pray that you would open the lids of our brains and fill us with light that we can understand and that we can have the ability to soar to these heights. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So whenever I come to passages in the Bible like this one, I start telling you how to live, you know, don't have sex outside marriage, paraphrasing here, don't do crude jokes, walk as children in the light, imitate God, expose the darkness, it's telling you all these things. I mean, so far Ephesians has been pretty nice, but now it's getting in your face and it's telling you don't and do. <laughs> and whenever I come to these parts of scripture, I always step back and refuse to take it blindly. I refuse to be that person who says, I don't know, the Bible just tells me to there. That's not very apologetic. That's not very informed. When the Bible tells me how to be moral, I want to be informed. I want to know that there's a purpose to the way I'm living, and that there's a reason for my sacrifices and for my efforts. And it's not to get into heaven. <laughs> so that's kind of what we're going to look at just a little bit here. Uh, the phrase, walk, it's in verse... Um, verse 8 walk as children of light is our boom <laughs> that's our phrase that's where he's I think commissioning the positive command and walk as children of light everything is working around that phrase so we last week looked at the new humanity and Paul contrasted the new humanity with the old humanity and we learn that the old humanity is self-seeking. 
it's numb, it cannot feel, so it seeks for sensuality and all these things out there, no boundaries morally whatsoever because they want to feel something, they want to know that they're alive. That's the old humanity. And then he contrasts that with the new humanity and says, okay, the old humanity, it was self-seeking, it was life-taking, but the new humanity is self-sacrificing, it's life-giving. There's this opposite going on. Old humanity is constantly pouring in and seeking self and like foil, it's becoming harder and harder as you compact it. But the new humanity is like Jesus and it continues to pour out, continues to give, it's imitating, it's forgiving, it's seeking to fill lives in certain ways. And that's the new humanity that we find our identity in is that we're this newness, we're the matured manhood that's somewhat attaining the likeness of Christ not that we're by any means perfectly imitating him, but there's this maturity from this animal-like nature to this new creation, 4 verse 24. Created in the likeness of God and true holiness and righteousness. Now, if we are a new humanity, that new humanity is part of God's new creation that he's working. The old creation's corrupt, it's been in rebellion, it's been death, but the new creation is coming with a new humanity, and that's what we're part of. Now, that is the best way to understand what it means to walk as children of light, is to understand this in the context of this new humanity, this new creation, what all this means. So, I'm going to take you back in time, some time ago, to the dawn of creation. The Bible opens with the earth was welter and waste, or formless and void, and darkness was covering everything, covering the waters, covering this formlessness, this wastefulness. That's all there is because of the darkness. It's welter and waste, it's formless and void, and it needs to be living and lush. So, after Genesis 1-2, welter waste because of darkness. Genesis 1-3 says, God said... Let there be light, and light floods in and scatters and chases the darkness away. The light overcomes the darkness. Because the darkness is gone and light is present, what happens in the following days of creation? The rest of Genesis 1 is all about fruit and fruit. There's birds in the air, there's fish in the sea, there's beasts on the land, there's fruit in the trees, and everything is lush and beautiful, and as it's to be, and at the end God says, it's good, I'm resting. That is the creation. And the new creation is nothing short of that. It's what Paul says, you guys are children of light. You're the part that is expelling the darkness. And as the darkness is being expelled, fruit is coming as a result of that. Eden-like fruits. The presence of God bringing blessings upon the earth. So you can see those comparisons in verse 7. It says, Do not become partners with them. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkness. You were like in Genesis 1-2. Welter, waste, formless, void, dark, death. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So see there the creation themes. There's darkness, there's light, contrasted and battling. And then verse 9 says, For the fruit of light, see that fruit, is found in all that is good, right, and true. So you were dark, but light came and overcame. And as a result of this light, there's fruit. 
So Paul's inviting us into the new creation. And as part of that new creation, it's our task to be children of light. That's the purpose, it's the point. Now, we are, what does it mean to walk as children of light? Children of light shine into the darkness. Children of light shine life-giving light into the self-seeking works of darkness. So there's this whole horde of darkness, and its works are in there, and it's seeking self, and it's sucking the life out of things, and it's pulling in for self and survival. But children of light bring the light of God, the creation of God, into that, and they expose it, and they shine life-giving into that. Rather than life-taking. Self-sacrificing rather than self-seeking. So that's what the children of light are for. The children of light shine life-giving light into the self-seeking works of darkness. That's a purpose. Now, this is done essentially in two ways our text says. How do we walk as children of light? How do we shine this life-giving light to the darkness? It's done essentially in two ways, okay? First is really obvious, and it tells us right here in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Walk as children of light by not being partners with those who work in darkness. What do the people or the works of darkness look like? Let's look at verse 3 and 4. It gives us two sets of triads. You know what a triad is? It's a group of three. Two triplets to describe the works of darkness. Verse 3 describes the sexual works of darkness. Yes, we have to talk about sex a little bit. (laughs) One um, student in my class, (laughs) this is totally getting off track, but it was... I was talking about um, pagan mythologies and comparing that to the creation story. And I was like, see... The pagan mythologies are not like the creation story. In the creation story, God is speaking and overcoming the chaos with his voice. That's a king. He speaks and things obey. In the pagan mythologies, you see the gods overcoming the chaos through violence and sex. And then all of a sudden, the student, who's like totally just doodling in his journal or whatever, not even paying attention, he goes, what? Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So I always give him a hard time about that. (laughs) So here we go. (laughs) The works of darkness are this in verse 3. Sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. Those must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. So there is this sexual part of the works of darkness that you're not even to participate in, not even a little bit. It can't even be named among you. Abstain from the appearance or even some sort of association that you're somehow participating in this. Now, to understand what Paul's saying here, uh, we sometimes think, well, gee, the Bible's so harsh on our society. I mean, people all over are getting around and hooking up, and they aren't waiting for marriage, and they're just doing whatever they feel like, and they're like the whole humanity, the self-seeking pleasure. I just want to feel alive, so let me do what I want. And we, we think, gosh, Bible layoff is kind of dated. It's not even relevant for today's culture. Wrong. Did you guys know that the Roman society was actually worse than our society when it comes to sex? 
And Paul has the audacity to speak to one of the leading cities of the empire and say, don't let him be named among you. This is not outdated and irrelevant to our society. In fact, this, what I'm telling you guys is baby talk compared to what Paul had to say to these people. Roman society, it was very common, and if this gets a little crystal, please just, you know. Um, it was very common inside the homes, at least in the city of Rome itself, where the seat of corruption was, um, that a man and wife would be in the same house, and the man would be with another woman doing it in the other room, and the wife has full knowledge of what's going on but never protested because this was the societal norm in the Roman Empire. The societal norm. There was no, actually, there's no word for homosexual like we have. There was no, like, label for people like that because they didn't see it as different. They saw it as normal. Whether hetero or homosexual, nobody asked questions about what you're doing. All that you had to do is make sure that you're doing it with somebody in a class under you. So gross society. And where do they get all this? Probably because they imitate their gods. That's what humanity does. We imitate the things we worship. The Romans, as the Christians, see sex as a gift from God. Or they would say it's a gift from the gods. So the more that we perfect the work of sex, the more we are worshiping and celebrating our gods. So they didn't care. All restraints are out. And let's just do it. Now, it probably makes sense when you consider what gods gave them this gift. In Greek mythology, if you guys don't know, the Romans pretty much borrowed all of the Greek's mythology. They weren't original. They just borrowed from every stinking culture. So let's look at Greek mythology to understand the Roman um, understanding of their gods. In Greek, you have Zeus, right? The chief papa of all the gods. In Rome, same God, but his name was just Jupiter. So who is this Zeus-Jupiter figure? Well, in some of the mythologies and some of the stories they tell about Zeus, Zeus went around and grabbed anybody he wanted and slept with them. It's called promiscuity. That was Zeus. He was a promiscuous character, and he was the head god of all the other gods. In fact, a lot of the other gods were coming from Zeus's interaction with the goddesses and what they were doing. And if you want to know why that was even in their stories, it's probably because as Greece was expanding, and Rome too as it expanded, what they had to do is realize, oh, our God conquered their God. How do we incorporate them into the story? Ah. Zeus does it with them. Boom, in the story. And so, as the society grew, Zeus and Jupiter were more and more promiscuous and gross And what you see in the Roman society is people merely imitating their God, the thing that they worship. Well, if that's what Zeus is like, shouldn't we be like that? I'm the man of the house. I need to be the God of my society, of my little domain. So we reenact Zeus and Jupiter. Contrary to what you see in the Roman society imitating Zeus, Paul asks the Ephesians in verse 1, You should be imitators of God, not of Zeus, but of the God revealed in Jesus Christ, who, verse 2, gave himself as a sacrifice for us. 
So if you're going to be imitating gods, you're not going to be imitating Zeus and this self-seeking, life-killing, selfish gratification at the expense of others. You're going to be imitating the God who lays down his life for other people and his life-giving for people. And to do the Roman way of sexuality... It's just to grab people, and you're, what you're doing is you're reducing the image of God down to a toy to be used at your expense and your disposal. And, you know, it's just, okay, we got several of them, my pantheon of people. And you're exchanging one for the next, and then you're exchanging that one for a new one, and you're abandoning that one, and abandoning that one. That is not life. Betraying, unfaithfulness, these are the words of death, abandonment. And Paul would ask us, look, be imitators of the God who is revealed in the self-sacrifice of Jesus. And if you're going to have sex and enjoy the gift of God, it's going to be in its proper context as Christ loved the church. You can do it with one person, and you're going to be self-sacrificially committed as Christ is to us. He doesn't just betray you when he's over, you're messing up again. You said it again, Tyler, dang it. Moving on. Christ is faithfully committed, and Paul is saying, look, the works of darkness are promoting death. It's promoting darkness. It's continuing to bring chaos into the creation. But the children of light are reversing this. And they're bringing the restored order of creation in the way that they're handling each other sexually. Any questions? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that's the first trad. The second trad is in speech. So sexuality then speech. It's verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So that's the triad, the uh, foolish talk, crude joking, and filthiness. Now, speech, and especially you see the context of the filthiness and the crude joking. Um, What we talk about is trying to build an environment of comfort about what we talk about. All right, sometimes there's, you know, you're uncomfortable talking about some things, and, you know, that's probably good. It's probably good that you're uncomfortable talking about certain things with people. And there's a reason it's uncomfortable, but the more you talk about it, the more you become familiar and comfortable with the subject. And here's what happens when you start joking about it. You take whatever it is and you diminish it down another level so it's more accessible for you. And as you begin to laugh at the jokes, you're opening yourself up to acceptance of those things. Okay. When you guys hear guest speakers, usually, you know, there's some, I don't know who you are, and they have to, like, earn some level of trust with his audience, some level of comfort. They often like to bring in jokes somewhere. Because laughter breaks down this friction, this tension, this wall. It's an icebreaker. Laughter makes us all feel close and together and comfortable. And filthy talk and coarse joking, that's what it's doing. Is when we begin to hear these crude jokes and we begin to laugh, we're breaking down this natural uncomfortableness about it. And it's coming in and it's invading. Laughing and telling bad jokes is a lot like letting darkness just seep into the light. Which doesn't make sense, but that's what you're doing. 
You're bringing this level of acceptance to things that ought not to be accepted. So Paul's saying, watch, as children of light, don't participate in the Roman sexuality, the self-seeking manner. Don't talk in the coarse jokes, the Roman way to joke around. Don't put each other down. Don't take life, but rather be those who give life. Notice he says, talk with thanksgiving. In chapter 4, verse 29, we saw him say, But speak in a way that imparts grace to your hearers. Forgive one another. See, the speech of the children of light is a giving speech. It's a building up. It's a piling on. Thanksgiving. Grace means gift. It's a giving. Forgiving one another. That's the language of the children of light. So rather than joking and putting down or bringing in corruption by the way we laugh... It's just this, let's build life. So the children of light shine life-giving light into the works of darkness. The self-seeking works of darkness. So uh, that's the triad of things. Don't participate in those. That's how you walk as children of light. Don't participate in those. But, secondly, expose the works of darkness. Expose them. Oh. <laughs> Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, you guys, we don't need to talk about expose, do we? It means bring it to light. Make it seen. Make it obvious. Now, before we abuse this verse, okay? Because this verse is abused in our society. Let us understand what this verse is saying. Go expose the works of darkness. So we need two questions clarified. Number one, are we supposed to expose the practices of darkness or the people in the darkness? What does verse 11 say? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Who's them? The people or the works? Probably the works in the context. So understand first, we're not to expose People were to expose works. Second question. Whose works are we to expose? Unbelievers or believers? Now this question messed me up all week. All week I studied for one of them. And late this week I decided, nope, I think it's actually the other and suddenly everything made more sense, which is, it was a hard week. And so, you know, this morning, <laughs> the whole thing shifted for the other. And um, I'm very confident in this matter for four reasons, which I'll give you. <laughs> but I just wish I had not assumed one over the other early this week. It would save me a lot of heartache and a lot of work and a lot of sweat and a lot of crumbled up pieces of paper and erased whiteboards. <laughs> Um, okay, so who is it? Are we exposed the unfruitful works of darkness of the unbeliever or the believer? It's an important question because we live in a society that does this. We parade against the gays. We picket in front of the clinics. And we preach to the legislation to bring morality to our country. We are in a society that thinks we're supposed to expose the unfruitful works of the unbeliever. But Paul is talking about the believer. 
He's saying expose the unfruitful works of darkness done by the believer, not the unbeliever. And this changes everything when you realize that it's the believer, the one who claims Christ, the one who's in the gospel, the church community. That's the one you're supposed to shine, boom, and expose what's going on. If they're infected with one of those two triads, sexually or speechfully or any other life-taking, self-seeking, absorbent thing, expose those works in this assembly. Now, why is it to the believer and not the unbeliever? I think naturally we read that verse and we think, boom, go in the world and show them all they're sinners. But that's, that's not what he's saying for four reasons. First, context. Look at verse 7. Therefore, that means he's shifting from the works of darkness. He talked about the unbelievers now. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Who's he addressing? He's addressing the Ephesian church. You heard about the works of darkness. Don't become partners with them, church. Rather, expose the works of darkness. So church, when, when, when darkness is coming in within us, because verse 6 says that there are some deceiving with empty words. Some of you are buying into this. You're, you're believing, oh, oh, we can do works of darkness. Expose that. Get the deceit out of here. No darkness in this temple. Reason number two that it's for believers. Nowhere does the New Testament command unbelievers to be moral. I think JC says this a lot, and it's pretty spot on. Where does the New Testament command the unbeliever to be moral? God is not the unbeliever's king. So why should we expect them to obey a king they know nothing of or want nothing of? That's like you coming to me and saying, Brandon, don't you know it's illegal to wear jeans when you're public speaking in Russia? I don't give a flipping care. I'm not in Russia. <laughs> but that's what we do to the... JC. <laughs> that's what we do when we come to the unbeliever and say, don't you know God says? They're like, cool, but I'm not in that kingdom. So the New Testament doesn't demand morality upon the unbeliever. Now, yes, we get the point that it's important for them, but you need to remember that they're unbelievers. Jesus is not their king at present. Third reason this is exposing the works of believers is Proverbs 9.7. Proverbs 9.7 warns us, be careful when you talk to unbelievers about morality. Listen to Proverbs 9.7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. So the Proverbs is cautioning us, hey, careful with the unbeliever, that you don't get all up in their face and tell them how to live, because you might get yourself hurt. <laughs> so don't expect to, to just tell them how it is and to change them. Expose the works within the church. And then fourth reason for believers is, um, this isn't from the text or anything, but this is more of a philosophical reason and it deals with our series identity. It's because unbelievers, let's just say this, sinners, find their identity in their sin. Now, they wouldn't call it that, of course. We're just calling it what we call it. Um, so let me put this another way. Unbelievers find their identity in what they do and what they like. 
So, to give you a specific example, the homosexual finds his identity in, I'm a homosexual, right? Isn't that why there's a, the whole movement and the whole like commun- the, the gay community and they have their parades and it's because that's their identity and that's what they associate themselves with. So, we've all heard this phrase, love the sinner but hate the sin. And I understand the heart of what that's saying and I, I think the intentions are good but philosophically it just doesn't work. You can't love the sinner but hate the sin because the sinner sees himself as identified with his sin. And if you hate the sin, he thinks you're hating him. So we just need to be careful about that mentality. Um, Understand that the unbeliever is identified with his sin. Therefore, Paul's not saying, go out and tell them how it is and make them feel all like, you know, hated. (laughs) That's not the message. He's saying, let's keep our focus here right now. Works of darkness are creeping in. This ought not to be. So go expose that. And not people, but expose the works themselves. So it's not like, oh, Tyler did something, everybody. Bring him up here. (laughs) It's not quite like that. It's that we are formed in such a way that Tyler's works, that kind of whatever he's doing, that work itself is made obvious. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It's like, that doesn't belong here. So... Why do we need to do this difficult work of exposing the works of darkness? The reason comes from verse 6. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you. There's a deceitfulness going on. Darkness is creeping into the Ephesian church, perhaps. And Paul's saying, don't let these naysayers, these empty words, these false teachers deceive you. And you guys hear this all the time in the church. You hear hear grace abused. You hear things like, it's okay, God's grace covers that. Or it doesn't really matter. God's only concerned about the big sins. Don't commit adultery. Or it's, you know, oh, you're better than the other people. Keep trying. You know, there's all these things that tend to belittle sin or belittle the works of darkness. Or, or the whole thing, we just got to be culturally relevant. Everybody's doing it. See, don't let anyone deceive you. Darkness is blinding. Darkness is deceitful. So we need the community to expose the works of darkness. So that we can see them. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam was in the garden. And if you remember from the history series, the garden was the first temple on earth. It was where God's presence was amongst people in the garden. And he told Adam two things. Adam, you're to work this garden, cultivate it, let it grow. And then he also told him, and you're to keep this garden, protect it, preserve it. And we see that second point keep the garden broken in chapter 3 when the serpent slithers in. Red lights everywhere. Why is a serpent here? Not Adam's mentality. The darkness had already poured in. And he wasn't exposing its works. Instead, the serpent deceived them. 
And that's what Paul is saying in a sense. It's, it's hey, you learn in chapter 2 that the church is a temple. We are the temple of God. You're, this is the new Eden. You're to protect it. Keep its borders. Don't let darkness slither its way in. Don't let it deceive you. Like it deceived Adam because he didn't expose it. He didn't dispel the serpent. He just, oh, what are you, oh let's have a talk. Like, oh, let's, you know, wishy-washy and I don't know, whatever. He got deceived. And so there's the warning There is deceitfulness happening amongst the people. So do verse 13 and verse 14 will result. Verse 13 says, But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Point. Expose it. It's seen. And when it's seen, the true believers will back away from the works of darkness because they say, Whoa, now I see. I'm not deceived. The darkness has been dispelled. Light has been replacing it. And I get it now. So do that. Expose the works. Deceit and darkness will flee. And then verse 14 will happen. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. These people that are deceived in the church will be awakened. It's like Paul's saying, this is what we're to do. You have people asleep in the dark. They've been deceived. They think they're living cool, but they're not. So you go wake them up. Expose the works of darkness that they may, woo, I get it. And Christ will shine on them. And they will be restored to the children of light. That's why. So now, how? How do we let our light shine with life-givingness into the self-seeking works of darkness? How do we let it shine and come and invade the dark? How do we let life be dispersed? How do we let fruit be born? How do the children of light do this? I give you four suggestions. First, comes from verse 10. Discover and do what pleases God daily. Discover what pleases God and do it daily. Verse 10 says, Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. (laughs) Try to discern. We don't have every answer for every situation. It's not like the Bible says for everything. This is God's will. Paul is telling them here, even fresh off 30 years, 40, whatever, 50 years after Jesus, uh, we need to discern the will of God. We need to figure it out. So this community, this means, should be a research lab with God's purposes and His pleasures on the table. And we're researching it. And we're coming with results. And we're sharing and living out these results. As we do that, we will make the darkness shameful in our midst. We'll do like what verse 12 is saying where it says, For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. As we make it very clear what pleases God and that's elevated, suddenly the works of darkness and what's shameful is made obvious. It stands out. And people will realize, okay, in this community, this researching of what pleases God, it's obvious. We see the results. I don't want to do or say this in their presence at all. And it helps expose the darkness. So... I lost my train of thought, but that's okay. The more that we understand the will of God and the more that we obey it, 
the more light there will be. Look at Genesis 1.3. God said, let there be light. And it was so. Didn't say, well, the light rebelled three times. Then God slapped it and obeyed. It obeyed when he spoke. Light is the result of obedience. Disobedience dims our light. So discover what pleases God and do it daily. That will bring the children of light shining brightly upon the works of darkness. Number two, treat sex as God's sacred gift. Treat sex as God's sacred gift. This is done in the way we practice sex, which um, shouldn't be at all for all of you. So your practice right now is waiting. Uh, But this is how the church community practices sex and talks about sex. And this is going to verses 3 and 4 about how your sexuality and your speech is handled. You see, we need to treat it as sacred. We agree with the Romans. Sex is a gift from God. It's a good thing. We're not nuns. I'm not telling you you're more godly because you abstain all your life. We enjoy the gift of God, but we keep the gift below the giver. And we exercise the gift in imitation with the giver. So that our practice becomes a self-sacrificing commitment to a singular individual of faithfulness. Not abandonment, not exchanging, not rejection. It's life-giving. And the way we talk about it is never in coarse jesting. It's never in joking. It's never in diminishing the sacredness of what the giver is giving us. Because the more we joke about it, we bring it down here. And the more we bring it down here, the more likely we're to do it. Because it's just common. And then the more we, you see the result. So talk about sex in a way that keeps it sacred. With your dirty jokes. I don't hear any here. I think that's good evidence that this community is in that regard exposing the works of darkness. Is that I think that people come in and realize, uh, if I say that, I'm going to stick out in a bad way. Number three, shine not as individuals, but as a community. (laughs) And this is good, because as children of light, we don't have to be like, okay, Hannah, go be the light. That's a lot of pressure on little Hannah. There's a world out there. Little Hannah. Now, true, one little candle can change a lot in the darkness. You can see quite a bit with one little candle. And many more candles is even better. But how much better if all the candles get together and make a bonfire? Now you can be warmed. Now you can see. Now you can cook. And that's the idea, is that we're children of light, but never think of yourselves as, I'm the light of the world on my own. It's together. A community. We become a bonfire. And that's helpful because this means that there's something that happens between us. That as we come together and make the bonfire, there's an accountability happening. And there should be. We should find people in the community we feel comfortable with enough to say, hey, um, I feel like I'm practicing the works of darkness here just a little bit. Of course, that's always how we say it, right? Just a little bit. It's not really that bad, but it's there. <laughs> um, help me out. And that's a good thing. And the light will shine and it will be exposed. And it's not like this has to become public, but just that we have that camaraderie to help, that accountability. And then finally, number four, shining our light into the works of darkness. 
Number four, sing, sing, so that Christ shines upon us. Sing, so that Christ shines upon us. Verse 14, where it says there, so that Christ may shine upon you. That, you notice in the ESV, I'm not sure how the other translations do, but in the ESV, it's bracketed in like a poetry thing. It's like three lines. It's because it's a song. Um, it says, therefore it says, but we've looked through the Old Testament and realized that this comes from no passage in the Old Testament. So Paul must be quoting from a song that they all know. Therefore, it, the song, says something they all know. Oh, yeah, that song. And so he's calling them to expose the works of darkness, to shine together. Remember that song. It's teaching us to do that. Sing, sing, sing. And bring the people together because our music, our culture is moving in a way that glorifies the Creator Himself. And Christ is shining upon us. So sing, community. Seeing that God would be glorified, that he would shine through the creativity and the songs. And so, yes, I see here this call to let's be like creators, not just reflectors, but let's start creating music that brings and exposes the works of darkness. But it's also a warning for us. Be careful what you're listening to. The music you're listening to. I get it that some Christian music is totally hard to stomach, and I'm with you on that, uh, some of it. I'm not going to tell you all unchristian music is sinful, get rid of it, because I believe that the Creator manifests His creation through people, believer or unbeliever alike. But when you listen to the, and I, it's unfortunate there's even a distinction, but when you listen to the secular music, <laughs> the common music, just use discernment. I call it now, starting right now, <laughs> the 510 discernment test. What's 510? It's 5 verse 10. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So cool. So we find music that's utterly, totally mind blowing creative. This is awesome beauty. 510 it. Is this pleasing to the Lord? You see, we don't need to start brainwashing ourselves with people who are singing about the works of darkness. We don't need to start sympathizing with that lifestyle in the sense of, oh, that's cool, yeah, well, whatever. It's not a big deal that Whitney's doing that. We don't need to numb ourselves. So, I don't care how creative a musician is, if he's celebrating the corruption of God's creation... He is not creative. He's destructive. And so the 510 test is simple. I don't care if they're a Christian band or a secular band. I think God made music. So boom, let's glorify him in music. Whether, create, whether Christian or not. But we don't have to embrace creationally corrupt the works of darkness in our music. And I think that there needs to be a line there. And that that's what Paul would say. As he's quoting a song here, he's quoting from something that is speaking of light. And you know what? There are unchristian bands that are doing that. They celebrate what is good. And we should be right on board with that. Just because they're unchristian doesn't mean you have to like segregate it, ostracize it. So, by doing those things, 
discovering and doing what pleases God daily, treating sex as God's sacred gift, shining as a community, not individually, and singing that Christ shines upon us. By doing those things, we are shining life-giving light into the self-seeking works of darkness. And we will protect the temple, and it will continue to shine, and people will be strengthened, and life will be given, and it will become a hospital for all those that are coming out of the works of darkness. And God will be glorified. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, football and for the excitement of games. And we thank you for music and its creativity. And we thank you for your creation. And God, we thank you for sex. And we thank you for all these things that you've gifted to us. And Lord, we want to practice them in ways that please you. In ways that don't participate in the works of darkness. But in ways that expose the works of darkness, bringing life-giving light and letting it shine. So do this in our midst, we pray. Amen.